Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not A Genre, the interview edition. Thank you so much for watching or listening wherever you are. I appreciate all of that support in whatever form. If you'd like to take it a step further, please visit me at patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre. I would love to have you there. You get not only these interviews, but a whole bunch of other things that only that family gets. Uh, or you can go to anchor.fm slash music is not a genre. If you're more of an audio person, there are ways to sign up there. Uh, you can listen for free, but uh, any donation, of course, would help support uh, the podcast and everything I do. And as always, you can see me, uh, the podcasts and a bunch of live music and music videos and such on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo. With me today is David Dabin. He is a composer, songwriter, arranger, and orchestrator. He was a dance music arranger for Beetlejuice on Broadway and an Emmy nominee for Outstanding Music and Lyrics for Eat Shit Bob on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. David, how are you today? I'm good, Nick. Uh, it's good to be here with you. Uh, how are you? <laughs> I am very good, thank you. Yes, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, those of you out there in TV land, we saw each other at a wedding recently and we've chatted before then, but it's kind of leading up to this moment here where the two of us can have just kind of a one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. I love so, your avocado, um, your pillow in the background. Oh, thank you. Yes. That's one of a pair. Uh, one is, one is this one I think is me and the other one is Catherine. So, you know, perfect. Uh, yes. So I always start with this, uh, just for fun, but can you tell everyone how we know each other? Sure. So we first, we met through your other half, uh, Catherine, and I met Catherine through a friend of ours, uh, Meg, and I guess, uh, Meg and, Cat were performing together at Summerstock. And funny enough, we I was at that Summerstock the year before. Uh, it was in New Hampshire. And uh, that the year that Meg and Cat were together, I was at a Summerstock that was a couple hours away. And our theater had a, a wig. Um, and Kat and Meg drove all the way to pick up this wig because they had like a really terrible wig at the theater and they needed a blonde wig. And they get to the to our theater and the costume designer was like, here's the wig. And she pulled out like one from like, you know, one of those party supply stores. It was like such a ratty, like, you know, Halloween wig. And Kat and Meg were like, oh no, we drove all this way just for this <laughs> not good wig. But in truth, it was like to get to see each other. And that was my first time meeting Kat. And um, yeah, we had, we had, we've been friends ever since. 
That's incredible. So this chance, the need of a wig, and that the fact that you were all there in an area that you, you know, you were just there for the summer, and now it's like 15 or so mm-hmm. years later. Yeah. And it brought us together. Yes, yes. <laughs> the good connections keep happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't you, t- I love this question because everyone uh, interprets it differently. But w- I would like you, whatever this means to you, it can be as, as far back in history as you want or it can be the last two weeks. Tell everyone your story. My story. Um, so I grew up. Uh, just outside of Boston in a town called Framingham, Massachusetts. It used to be known as the largest town in the country. No longer. It's also a city. I actually was a self-taught musician. My sister played piano and took dance. And I just loved, I specifically loved theater. I loved dancing. I loved creativity. Um, I had a basement in our house that I would play records and cassette tapes of different musicals. And somehow I got a hold of a chunk of fabric and I would somehow design like pulley systems. I'm just remembering a lot of this as I'm speaking right now, pulley systems with fabric so that like I'd pull one and it would pull like a string of them together and one would pull up. And it was sort of like my way of being creative, but I love doing it to music. And I had never, I've always remembered that I used to do this thing with fabric and pulleys, but I never actually connected till now that like music was actually a big part of it because I would find either a song that had a lot of mood or texture to it. And I was always intrigued by how that connection always worked together. And I would just dance around in my basement. And so eventually my mom's like, okay, we're going to sign you up for piano lessons. Cause I would just sit at the piano and start, you know, playing my own stuff. And so she signed me up for piano and I took about three months of that. And I would not practice. I just, for whatever reason, I would just sit down, you know, play my own music. And at that time, my mom was like, if you're not going to practice piano anymore, we're going to stop your lessons. So she stopped my piano, but I just kept writing and doing my own thing. And um, up until college, I thought I was going to, I started studying dance with the Boston Ballet. And I thought I was going to be a director choreographer. And when it came time for me to go to to go to college, I was like, oh, I should go to school and study something in performing arts. Let me study specifically acting because that's all I knew how to do at the time. And I, my mom was always saying, like, you should go into music. You're gifted in music. You're gifted in music. And I was like, no, no, no. Music's just a hobby. Music's a hobby. So I ended up going to the Hart School of Music, and that's where I met Meg. And during my time there, in my junior year, a professor, well, my sophomore year, a professor came up to me and said, David, we think as faculty, we've been following you that you've been coaching a lot of singers and orchestrating and your composer, you should look into getting going into music. And I was like, hmm, I'm not sure. And eventually something clicked. And I was like, you know what? Music's always come really easy to me. Let me explore it. So I ended up creating my own major in music direction composition. And then I had a teacher that was not jiving with my skills. He uh, didn't understand that I was self-taught, how my ear worked. And I'm not somebody who has perfect pitch or can transcribe really well, but I definitely play by, you know, at the time I was playing a lot by just feel and instinct and I knew a lot of songs. So it was easy for me to sort of look at sheet music and not really read it, but use my ear and kind of use the notes at the same time. And I didn't really, no one had ever taught me how to practice piano. 
And he basically said, you're a terrible pianist. You're never going to make it as a musician. And you should think about another career. And he would give me like these really basic piano stuff. And looking back, I just realized he never understood that I didn't know how to even look at the music. I just <laughs> look at it and be like, okay, the music should just come to me and pour out. Cause that's how music always was to me. It was like, mm -hmm. I could see things and it would just happen. Say that was how composition was for me. I just had no idea where it would come from. So I wanted to not only not make music anymore, but I also knew that I didn't want to not, not make music. So I decided to apply to grad school and I really wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon as an undergraduate because um, they had an amazing musical theater program. Mm -hmm. And I got rejected for then. But in my senior year, I applied for uh, instrumental conducting at Carnegie Mellon. And at the time, the program actually wasn't in existence anymore. So I got a rejection letter. And I wanted Carnegie Mellon also because it has a great theater program, and I wanted to cross-pollinate the two. So mm -hmm. in March of my senior year, I got an email from a professor saying, I came across your resume you should apply for choral conducting. And I had no knowledge of choral music. I was not really a vocalist. I never, I sang in choir in high school, but that was about it. So to me, it was like choir, uh, it felt sort of stuffy. My mom wisely said, David, they're coming after you. Like you should look into the program and just go to the audition. So I said, fine, I'll apply. I had to conduct a 40 person choir, which I had never done before. <laughs> I had to do a song in German and I got the wrong sheet music. It was a disaster, but the professor loved how I worked with the singers and gave me a full, not only conducting lesson, but a lesson on how to work with a chorus, with a chorus there. And I think he just liked how I took his notes and he could tell that I was, I don't know, either he, he after my session, he said, your musicality is very good and I feel like this program is going to change you. And he was right. I was able to connect my dance knowledge with my music again. And slowly I was able to start to make music and understand everything just started to click through his methods of teaching and both patience, but also keeping a very high bar of what good musicianship is. And I also didn't know at the time he was a huge, huge choral legend. His name was Robert Page. And um, anytime I've done something in, in that sort of world, I say his name and everybody perks up. So like, oh my gosh, you got to work with him. And Ooh. to me, it was just, you know, an older guy. Um, but he was an amazing legend, an incredible teacher, musician, arranger, and somebody um, who just... I cared about and he cared about me a lot and it was a it was a very special mentorship that I, that I got to have and mm -hmm. I'm very grateful for him because I, I feel like all the gifts that I guess I was given on this earth he was able to sort of rekindle and connect in and I love to do many things I love to teach I love to arrange I love to compose I love to lead I love to inspire I love to coach and and create and collaborate and he showed me a great way to be able to incorporate those things throughout my life and then I came to New York and started doing New York things where you try to find work and projects and everybody you know and uh, the people that you know and who they know and then who are the people that they know that they know that you can then sort of network with and <laughs> learn from and until you find like what your path is. Until you find your path. Yeah. 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 Now this brings up so much, but I think of the many favorite things that I'm getting from your story, one is the importance for you. And I would say for many people of having a mentor, someone like a mentor in your life. Mm-hmm. 
that there's a there's a path that we're all looking for, even if we don't know it. And we may take the wrong road here or there, or take the wrong advice, or give ourselves the wrong advice. But it's that person who can look at us and say, I understand you, and I see where your strengths are and the things that you can bring into that and, and be better at even, and, and more of a total picture of this is where, for now at least, this is where you belong in, in the world, and I can help get you there. Mm-hmm. You feel like that, that, that Robert Page was somebody who did that for you. Without question, because I think what a mentor does, and and I will say I had I had another teacher that I worked with before him that he was a really he he took a lot of the mentorship responsibilities in terms of like showing me how to do things that I had questions on and really paving a pathway for me to understand what it means to be a, a musician in in theater and what are the steps to success. Um, and he was wonderful. I think the difference, though, why to me, Robert Page, though, was more of a mentor to me, was I think what a, a mentor does versus just a teacher is a mentorship. I'm actually trying to figure this out as as we talk. Yeah, I can't quite tell if a mentorship is, you know, there's that line from King and I, um, I'm blanking on it, but basically it's saying like by your pupils, it might even be the line, by your pupils, you will be taught, you know, and I think all teachers are learning from their students, but maybe there's something different with a mentorship where it's, it's not just about learning, it's about traditions and it's also about, I don't know, I am actually trying to figure out what the separation is between mentorship and teacher, maybe it's time. You know, like I spent a great deal of time with Robert Page. I really studied him. I think a mentorship is more about also the mentee, but there's an ador- maybe an adoration for both people in that relationship. Yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on mentorship? Like, what do you think the difference is between teacher and a mentor? No, this is, yeah. I mean, it's a great question, one to untangle. I I think that I I look at, I guess that's coming off the top of my head, but I look at um, the mentor mentee relationship in, in part based on, like you said, what each person is bringing, because you as a, as a student have to be open enough to be willing to allow somebody else in to where they can understand you better and know a little more about you than just, well, here's the skill you have and here's a skill you don't have. And here's what you need to learn. And here's what, they say that you don't really need to learn. It, it, it has to be this deeper connection. And that also, there has to be a willingness from the mentor to be open to that and to not just kind of stop at the lesson, to stop at the skill and say, well, again, I, this is what I teach. And if I see you need to learn some other thing, yeah, I'll teach you that too. But that's about as far as it's go. I'm not going to help put the puzzle of it together for you. I'm going to give you the pieces and then you go off and figure it out. Whereas I think a mentor helps put that puzzle together for you and makes it more comprehensive and holistic and all of that. And a lot of that, I think the second element is not just about the two people, but it's the match itself. So you can have two people very willing to be there, but if their objectives are different or their style is different, something about them doesn't click the way you can have an awesome, just an awesome therapist, but it's just not the right fit. You know, they're not going to get you to where you want to be as a person, or you can have an awesome 
friend or partner in, in any type of relationship, business or personal, but if in the end, the fit isn't right, the aesthetic or the way that you connect to the world even, then it doesn't matter how awesome those people are, then the relationship won't work. That's very true. I mean, the, re the relationships are always key. You know, but I think about like my junior year, I took calculus in high school and I loved my teacher. You know, I loved being in her class and learning from her. And we had an amazing relationship. I don't think she was a mentor to me, but she was a teacher that I could go to in that way. And I'm still trying to think like, what is the difference? Because I think the, because we like, you know, I, and I felt like if I wasn't learning something, she would be like, okay, here's another way to think about it. Or mm -hmm. here are skills that you can apply to life, you know, in, in that way. Um, mm. So I feel like there, and I feel like even when I teach and there are a couple of people I do sort of mentor, but I think even when I teach, I still incorporate a lot of the privacy that a mentorship has. But I feel like maybe with a mentorship, like, you know, somebody, if they're having a question at any time, they can ask or there's definitely something of more, more territory that's getting covered also in a mentorship. Yeah, I think it's in a way how I see it in my head is filling the spaces in between. So you can, you can have somebody, like you said, your calculus teacher, who didn't just say, here's how you do calculus, but was willing to put in a little extra time and, and even go beyond that to a certain degree. But then that, I think, to become a mentor, you need to then figure out how it all connects within that person and how that person connects with the world. And then when you see that, you can say, okay, now here's, here's what you can do with this. And here's how, here's how, like uh, you said, this is going to change your life. That's mm -hmm. not necessarily something that a great teacher would say. They would, you know, they would be there and be present and do everything a great teacher does. But to really be that intimate to say, I understand you well enough to know that this, if, if you allow this in, it's going to change your life. Well, it's interesting, as you're saying that, like, for some reason, the analogy of thinking of Jack Black and um, the Rock School, uh, School of Rock. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, he's not a teacher, but he definitely becomes a mentor to them, you know, to these right. kids. So they each have their own things in that way. And he does teach them, you know, music and things. But it's funny, he does become that mentor, but not a teacher. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a good point. And, and I think where what he did in that, in that role for the kids was what any good teacher, but especially mentor does, is you meet the student at their, where they're from. You don't just, because I, I taught piano and other things for years. And, and when I started, I was so young. And one of, the, one of the mistakes I made was, well, here's my curriculum you know, learn it. And I mean, I'd find ways to help them learn it. But but what I learned is every student has something different to offer. And if all you're offering them is the standard curriculum, because that's what you think is most important, then you're going to miss some of the wondrous things that are within that student that could not only be brought out and made wonderful themselves, but could then even cross over and make them better at all these other things. Mm -hmm. So I and I think yeah. that's kind of what he did in that in that movie. You know, he found what their strengths were, what their interests were, met them at their level and where their world was the strongest and brought them out in, to connect with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm.
And it sounds like, it sounds to me, and I think the reason why I stuck on this, you know, first was that the, the other person that you mentioned, and I, I can't remember all of the details, seemed a lot less encouraging. My piano teacher? Yeah. Yeah, my piano teacher was the one that was not encouraging. And then I had a, a wonderful teacher who helped me while I was in school, who really did show me a lot of the ropes and really encouraged me to... I definitely did things on my own. Like, I got assigned a project... I did a show called Spoon River Anthologies based on the on the book. Mm-hmm. And there was a professor at the school who was directing it. And he said, you know, there's a, all this poetry and folk songs. And the head of the of the music, uh, the music director of the theater program said, David, why don't you take this? And this was my first project to do. And he thought I was just going to like teach the music that was on the page. Uh, to me, that I didn't even know that that was the option. To me, it was... <laughs> okay, I've got this sort of like, you know, not great things. And I know that when when people are doing a show, they need sheet music. I arranged everything. I came up with piano accompaniments. I came up with chorales. I came up with concepts, perspective on these things. It was truly my first time ever arranging anything. There was this song that I like came up with this, you know, it was just like, you know, a 16 bar song, but I had progressed it. I had a long, figured out, like I wanted this, I wanted to repeat and then build to this acapella section where it was like, you know, this anthemic, everybody in like beautiful, like belty, warm choral sounds Mm. saying, I want like, I think the lyric was, I want freedom now. And I wanted that lyric and the melody to sort of soar together. And it's funny, I remember going to, and you know, that was all stuff that I did on my own. I didn't have a teacher overlooking me. I just went and did it. But I think that that was just to go back to my first point was that was an example of like, I just did my own thing, but the teacher was like, I'm handing this over. And he had a lot of trust in me mm-hmm. that I would do it, but I don't think he knew that I was going to arrange. And years later, funny enough, I was working on a project in the city and I was sitting next to somebody who went to my, to where I went to school at heart. And he graduated, you know, 12 years after me. And he said, Oh my gosh, you're David Dab. And I said, yes. He goes, I read your name in college because we all had the sheet music to spoon river and you did all these arrangements. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I have no idea what, Aww. you know, or what, condition he goes they were wonderful and i was so touched because at the time i thought they were wonderful wow yeah i was i was really i was truly very proud of that work because it was the first time that like i was like anything goes i can make anything happen and it's hard as you get older as a musician to remember that concept that any you can do you can literally do anything that's where music comes from is getting to bang two random notes that might not even typically sound good and figure out how to make them sound good. I love You know, that. like that's, that's, and what are some things, but as we start to work as professionals, time becomes an issue and that factors in. And, and it's, I'm really glad we're talking about this because I'm working on a project now where I'm trying to rekindle my mindset of um, where I was at that time. And it was, it's true. Anything was possible because I had no rules. I didn't know that there were even rules. Did you feel like, and this kind of goes a little back to the, the story of the fabric and all of that, but did, have you always felt to a certain degree that you could 
make your own rules or did you go through a period where you felt like you needed to know what the rules of the, the game and the world are? Yeah. So like, for example, one of my first big projects was dance arranging the Nutty Professor, which was for, which was for Marvin Hamlish. Mm. And I was working with a choreographer, Joanne Hunter was wonderful. Uh, Rupert Holmes wrote the script and Jerry Lewis was directing. And this was right before Marvin had passed. And yeah. I had no idea what dance arranging really was. I knew dance breaks. I loved dance breaks. I danced to so in, to them in so many shows. So I was a real fan of dance arrangements. And Joanne and I just started playing. And I would, all I knew is that I have to use the composer's work. So I took every aspect of that. I took chords. I took just rhythm. I took melody. I inverted melody. I inverted chord progressions. I took intervals and played with those. Like I literally took every little bit that I could play with and just to see what it was and doing other shows, people are like, um, have said, sometimes they said I've taken too many liberties and other times they're saying, don't take enough. Yeah. I haven't taken enough liberties. I'm Mm -hmm. working on a project now where they're saying take more, which Uh. for me is delicious. And I've, I've also, I feel like now I'm in a time where I've actually come up with a method that works for me where I don't have to worry about, Oh, I need to worry about, uh, just like, even when I did Beetlejuice, there's a song called Creepy Old Guy. And the first dance break I did that we actually did in DC and was not working. You know, I had the melody of the song in there. It was just, it was very literal and it just never took off. So they were like, can you come up with another one? And I was like, let me just go for it. And they were like, just, you know, make it really bold. And I did. I I took Eddie's amazing music and I just played around and I unlocked something that like was just really fun and took the song from where it was to figure out how to just keep it going in a way that kind of told the story. And um, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, another fun reminder of like, sometimes you just, you're supposed to do one thing, but then until you, you try something else, it, you know, it, it clicks when, it, when you're doing, when, when you're doing the, you always want to find that moment where something clicks and it's true. It didn't click before um, because I was told I should be doing this, but it wasn't right. It wasn't also authentic to my skills and how I hear music. Mm. And now like, if you go back and you listen, you know, me looking at that music, I'm like, how did I come up with this? Now I remember at the time I had a full, I was like, Oh, I can pull this from this part and this. And, and Eddie was like, go like play, just make it really awesome. And, Having that also, it was one of the first times I also got to really, besides him and Marvin, I have gotten to work with many composers okay. in the room for my dance arrangements. Most of my work has been people that had either passed or was found music from the radio. I did a show called The Sign of the Times that was all music of the 60s. Oh, cool. um, so my collaborators were choreographer and music team. So I, it's it's fun to to break rules and and make up rules so that you can break those new rules. It, it, I think there is, I, I think you're right in saying that you have to remind yourself that that's something that you can always do. And, and I, it's interesting to me that you say that you have to do that as you get older. And I want to ask more about that because my, the, my feeling is there are people who from the beginning feel like there are rules to follow and you have to, you have to hit the mark on those rules all the time. And there are other people who feel like 
anything goes. And then there's the spectrum and everything in between. And generally, those people are fairly consistent throughout their their lives as much as they want to see it as I've changed. Their changes are kind of like this. And it, you know, to have that uh, kind of progression of be of starting from a place maybe where you, you I, I, when I'm saying this for a lot of people out there who who are like this because I used to be this way, but where you were you were taught that this is how you do it, and if you don't do it that way, then you're technically wrong. There are so many other ways to do everything, and the more you can open yourself up to to that possible that realm of possibility the closer you get to really discovering exactly the uniqueness of what you do and who you are. So the difference between your first version of that song was it was probably completely right and also good, but it didn't have a spark that was needed or some other element that you said something clicks. And the reason that it clicked wasn't just because it, it clicked for others and that those people liked it was because you found the you inside of that. I completely think that's great assessment of what I was feeling too. And like rules come with judgment and as artists, we're trying to get away from judgment. Judgment is also different than editing. Mm. So yeah, I would say rules come with judgment and that's why it's really hard sometimes to have rules when you're trying to create. Having some rules is really good. Like I'm going to do, I'm going to write a song in major, you know, instead of minor or I'm going to use this chord progression or I want to find this melody. But, you know, when you're trying to, when the rules are more shoulds, that's when you get tripped up. Mm. Uh, So what do you mean by rules are different than editing? So like, think of like Jackson Pollock, right? Like he would, would, would create his, his, his splattered um, paintings and, you know, editing might be like, okay, I've done a lot of red. Um, what do I need to balance it? I might need to put some yellow in, mm-hmm. you know, and finding that right shade of orangey yellow to balance it might be the editing. Or, you know, me coming up with a piece of music and having too many notes. And then, but like my first pass at it had the general cadence of the, of or had the general um, flow of an arc. You know, it had a beginning, it had a progression, it had a motion, it had a push and pull, but maybe there were just too many notes, or maybe I I meant to hit one chord, but I hit another. So being able to listen to that. And I think the editing comes from trying to get the clearest information mm. across mm-hmm. is where editing comes through. One part is just throwing it against the wall or seeing what comes out. And then the next part is revising it so that Mm -hmm. what's inside actually can be heard. Because a lot of times, you know, it's like watching somebody on American Idol in the auditions that thinks they're a singer and they might feel like they are internally, but people hear them and they're like, but you're not on pitch and you're not doing it. It's like then the editing process is actually their learning process of technique and figuring out how to breathe properly and sing on vowels. And so it's not just about what's in the head. It's also, there's multiple steps. Well, yeah. And that talks a lot about just, just that you need to know enough about technique, whatever that means in order to get your message across in the, in the way that's effective and in a way that kind of takes that out of the equation for the listener. So they're not focusing on your 
technique or how amazing you are at something because they're just so caught up in what you did that you make it seem like it was always meant to be that way, you know? But I like this, I love this idea of, I, I almost think of it as expansion and contraction in, in the sense that the first thing you do is if, you know, throw everything up there and see, you know, how it, what is there and then start to decide, well, maybe I should take this out and replace it with this or don't replace it with anything. It doesn't belong, you know, and, and edit it down to the point where it again has the clearest expression of what you're trying to achieve. And to me, the difference between the, you know, rules and judgment and editing is rules and judgment to me imply lack of choice. You can only do this. That's it. And editing to me implies choice. You are choosing to only do this. You are choosing to not mm -hmm. do this, but you're not being told either externally or by some inner voice that you can't do it. Yeah, that makes sense because, you know, even preparing for today, you had sent me a list of things to think about in terms of questions that we might talk about. And one of the things, and, you know, I wrote, took down some notes and one word that just came out this perspective because you you had a, you had one of your questions was about um, how do you approach music and what do you look for in artists and mm -hmm. um, and perspective really kept coming up for me when I was making some notes and I think that that's when I love your concept of editing as choice and choice is perspective right like if you're going to wear a sweater or a t-shirt your perspective on you're getting information about the weather is, but also how you're going to feel in that weather. Mm, wow. Yeah, that's great. God. Yeah, that, that you're, yeah, you're connecting, you're connecting your process with how it's connecting to the world, like the feel that you, that you want. Wow. That's great. God, my head is swirling with so much right now. <laughs> uh, which, which means I'm going to take a left turn because that's what we're talking about here. We can throw up anything. <laughs> Yeah, I keep staring at this because I I love it. And that is and then we, you know, we're going to get back to music, too. But you have a picture food blog called Good Crazy Bites. Yes. And actually, uh, Catherine was um, one of, I think, the actual first person I ever told about it. I have a so I have a Instagram picture blog called Good Crazy Bites. And it was something I was doing when I was traveling a lot with various projects. I loved eating, finding new restaurants in local places. And so it was a way for me to um, actually research things. So it wasn't actually, it wasn't about me posting as much as following other people. And very early on, I realized, oh, I'm quite good at the photography of it. You know, people were saying, oh, you know, you can make a business out of it and you know who knows so I just started doing it and I kept it truly to myself for a while mm -hmm. until I had told Kat and the idea of it was that I wanted something that was just for me not for anybody else mm. um, and it was just private and that was just something that had excited wow. me was getting to do all of that um, and ultimately I started sharing and during the pandemic I cooked a ton so getting to post some of the stuff that I cooked uh, and baked. And so I, I love I love food. I love dining with people and what uh, that experience. And I think there's a lot of combination, the connection of music and food. Um, I worked on and there's you know think about editing. You know you could you could try a dish and say oh it's great but it's missing salt or you know you have too many ingredients here. Maybe we need to remove something. 
Um, mm. There's always balance. There's timing. There is, you know, there's the ingredients. There's recipes. There's improving a dish. There is it's sensory. It's it can be done privately. It can be done in a group. There's both the private time and the public time of food. There is the preparation. There is the execution. You know, and it's hard when you're cooking and eating at the same time and tasting things. Like by the time you're done, are you full on what you've been tasting? Can you even eat what you want? Because are you so sick of, you know, trying this, but you get much joy from watching everybody else experience it? Mm, Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of parallels there with music. I I was on the board of a, um, a remarkable chorus called Choral Chameleon uh, led by Vince Peterson. Uh, I was president last year and he created a program years ago that he brought back during the pandemic, which was they partnered up with both a chef and a textile stylist who uh, they alternated months and the choir went into recording studio and recorded pieces. And one month you got a recipe that would follow um, the sheet music, uh, would follow the music. And so you would cook the dish and then listen to the music. And somehow the recipe, Lish's amazing work, paired up with the dish that you were eating. Uh, and we would have discussions about the music and the experience of it. It was remarkable. And then with Abby, Abby, we were following uh, th- these uh, weavers making a, a textile blanket in Colombia, and at the end you received the blanket but you would hear the process of talking about texture and pattern and color Mm. um and the music paired up with that and there was always a video and uh it was a great way for the the the, both the ensemble and chorus because they're they're two different groups um within choral chameleon for them to still make music during the year and still do it in a safe way but yet still be creative. And Vince had based all of that on another program he had done years ago called Taste, where it was working with a chef and each piece of music was designed to match a dish and you would get your mousse-bouche and at a specific part of the music you would eat and experience the combination of music and food. That's incredible. That's, wow. I mean, you think all the time about dinner music or music for various parties or we're you know putting our wedding music list together you know things like that but to be to be that married to the food that's a whole that's like pairing a wine with your meal you know there was one instance where it was i think our second dish where it was a chicken dish with like tomatoes it it was it was delicious spin on like a i think it was like a chicken cacciatore sort of thing where it was like tomatoes and olives oh no sorry chicken putinesca and olives and she created a polenta and i remember at the end of her video she said make sure that you have really crusty bread to dip in the sauce and at the time i was like watching my weight i was you know trying to eat healthy because we were obviously all at home and all we could do was eat i was like i really don't need the bread but then something in my gut was like she insisted said get the bread. 
So I did it and I, we're all on Zoom and I eat my meal. And as the song's finishing, she was not joking. I took the bread and dipped it in the sauce. And like the way the chords and the singer sounded together with the sauce and the bread, I was so grateful for those calories. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was unreal. And the timing of eating the dish along with the timing of the music also worked out. It, it was, that was one of the most amazing experiences was all of them were exceptional, but that timing. And I was also, my partner, Andy wasn't home. So it was just me. And it felt like a very private experience that I got to, I'd cooked it all. I got to listen. I got to, you know, physicalize the, the, the dish. It was something I really loved. I have not ever heard of this. And that's, you know, I mean, there are a lot of things I haven't heard of, but usually in a, you know, in a conversation or an interview, like, oh yeah, I kind of, this is something just so completely new, but now I, I'm going to need to experience that. Yeah. Someday. Come check us out. Coral Chameleon. Coral. Yeah. I'm going to write this down and I'm, yeah. And anybody out there listening, a couple things, first of all, Coral Chameleon, but I've seen Good Crazy Bites and the pictures are incredible. And, well, and thanks, Nick. if for some reason, you know, I decide to end this interview in the next three minutes, it's because I'm really hungry right now. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah. yeah. Now, going back to music, because, the you know, I like to write notes that I can't read myself, apparently. But, you know, we get there. I, I thought it was you. Would you say that you because I know you started this way that through your life as a musician that you are largely still self-taught? If I am, I would consider myself still self-taught. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so, because I think that that's where my foundation was rooted. Yeah. Though I do have a lot of training like there's still things that a lot of musicians talk about or other artists where I'm like, I still have no idea what that is, you know? Um, so in that instance, I always feel like I'm self-taught, but I also know that I had an incredible opportunity to work with one of the most renowned choral people ever um, mm -hmm. and getting to work with Dr. Page and for two years and in our relationship past my time with Carnegie Mellon too. So I don't know. I, I am in a bizarre place because I take a lot of pride in being self-taught, but I also take a lot of pride in the training I got. Right. So you, I think what you're saying is you operate on a fundamental level as a self-taught person, but you added to that all this training that that gave you even more. Yeah, I would say that's a that's a good assessment. Yeah, I feel and it's hard because they are different parts of the brain. Like they're one is more analytical and one is more creative and trying to figure out when to use both. It's like editing, as we were talking about editing and creating, you have to know when you're doing what and when and why and how and what you need to make it successful. And I, and that's where I think training is so outstanding is not just for the problem solving, but for progress. It does help figure out how to sometimes connect the dots when you're lost. And sometimes it works, you know, without it. But I, I think the every individual is different. And for me, knowing how to utilize the skills that I've been given at different times in my life has been very beneficial, I think. I think you're right that everyone's different too, because there are people who have had wild success in not just 
you know, world success, but artistic success, never knowing how to read a note or think, you know, or, and, mm -hmm. and in quite a few different kinds of music too. We usually equate that with rock and roll or pop or something, but there've been plenty of other kinds of music where people have excelled just having that instinct and ear. And I was always brought up with, you know, ear training as would say, or just being able to, you know, to play what you feel is it was as important as knowing knowing what you're playing. So I kind of had that dual upbringing where know your theory and know you know be able to say well this is what I'm doing but then don't let that stop you from going to a place that you know you need to go because you think the you know because you think you're breaking some rule of theory or because, or or because you're not even sh sure how you can describe what the theory of that is. So what? You know, the, the end result, the music that you're creating, the experience that you're creating for people is more important than, than trying to justify it based on some, you know, theoretical knowledge you have or don't have. That makes me think of um, Andy, my partner, uh, who's an outstanding um, musician, bought me one year The Inner Game of Music. Do you know that book? No. It's, it was inspired by a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Okay. And the inner game of tennis, you know, talked about for any tennis folks out there, talked about how do you serve in tennis? Like you basically throw up the ball and you hit. And yes, you can work on technique in tennis of it, but how do you ultimately you're just throwing it and swinging. And when you're in the right headspace, it happens. But when you try to make it happen, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so that's where tennis also is thrilling because you're like oh my gosh i did it right and you got to keep going because you want to play the game but so it's talking about that in the zone moment so the inner game of music is the music version of that and there was an analogy early on in the book of like it's similar to going skiing right there's the two people that go skiing one that's like okay what do i do how do i do it what do I put my weight back? Do I put my weight forward? Am I wearing enough coats? You know, do I put the goggles on before I ski? Do I do it while I'm skiing? Do I keep my poles up? You know, do I put one foot in front of the other? And then there's the other person that's like, okay, I'm just going to go here, goggles on and go. And most of the time, the person that just goes gets down the mountain fine. You know, and obviously, I'm sure there's also the person that's like, I got it, and then falls and hits a tree, you know? <laughs> but the concept of, like, what does it mean to just let the natural flow come out? And it's, sometimes it's really hard to keep that vessel open so that things can naturally fall into place. Because that's a lot of work, and there's a lot of preparation to go into keeping that channel open there's the preparation of even putting on the skis and going up the mountain and mentally being ready for whatever is going to happen yeah and i i think it does apply to so many things that that there's i i would say that where technique comes in when you're talking about something like let like skiing or performing uh and certain and composing is uh can you replicate that so you let your instinct go. It teaches you something while it's happening. But then do you know what you learned? Like, do you know where you were? Do you know where your, where your headspace was and the actual physicality of what you did or the men mentality of what you did so that when you need to do it again, can you, can you do it again and do it well? Mm -hmm. and, that, and I've heard say that the, you know, the people who are the best at what they do 
it's not because there aren't other people out there who can, oh, you know, I'm going to hit this, you know, three point, you know, once and do an amazing job, but it's because those people can just do it over and over and over. And if they fall and maybe don't do it once, they know how to correct that and they can do it again. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that make that what you were saying made me think of is that the person who's able to start by just throwing it away, or even if you're within a process and you're working on something, you're like, this isn't clicking, I need to go in a different direction. It's the idea of giving yourself permission to go there. And there's a podcast I did last year that talked about how as a developing artist and as someone who wants to, you know, write more and write better or get to a different place, there is an idea that's happened over and over in history where uh, another artist will do something that you maybe have never heard before. And your brain says, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Wow. And, and I maybe I, I sort of thought of that a year ago and dismissed it because I was like, no, that's not going to work. And then someone else did it well. And you're like, oh, my God. And you're giving you it gives you permission to go in that direction. And I think the stronger an artist is, the more they're able to give themselves that permission as often as possible. Mm, that's wonderful. Yeah, because it, it, you want to give yourself that, that, as you said, permission. Yeah, and I think we like going back to the idea of rules and judgment is we find all these reasons not to give ourselves permission. And the hope is that the, the more you do and the older you get and the more experience you have, the more permission there is to the point where now your permission is just how you are. So you were talking about, I think earlier, about how there's a certain way that you approached music or it might have been for the, the Beetlejuice thing. And that when you made that shift, that you you couldn't completely remember how you got there, but that now you there there are certain ways you approach it where you kind of maybe took information in that and say, oh, okay, well I can do it this way again or go in that direction again, and it might lead to where I need to go. It might not, but at least I can go there. Yeah, because and that's where analysis comes from after doing, you know. Ooh, yeah analysis and in, in like being able to break it down and say what's yeah. true yeah 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 no that's great and sometimes the the analysis is actually not even that important and so that's where i'm in the place of like now i don't want to analyze when do i want to analyze because sometimes when i'm analyzing it interrupts creativity oh yeah yeah very true very true speaking of creativity i loved listening to um final call that you just released that video of oh wow thank you Thanks. <laughs> I loved it musically and video was awesome. And, oh, uh, thanks. Yeah, we're hoping to do more videos. But yeah, it's uh, I, I think that as much as I love performing, it's really writing and recording where I, I am the most at home, you know. And I thought while you were talking earlier about the idea of giving, of, of not following rules, that a lot of what I do in the studio has to do with, let me just try something and see if it works. And if I'm a Jackson, you know, Jackson, if I'm throwing up everything on the canvas, then listen to it and decide, well, what is actually working and what do what's needed and what isn't. And I used to do a uh, band type recording where I would say, well, there's four pieces in this band. So all four pieces have to play all the time. And if it was recording and I was doing 16 tracks, 
I'd be like, well, how am I going to do that? You know, and then I realized, well, shit, I came up with this great keyboard part. And in the end, I only really need about six seconds of it because the, it was just extraneous throughout the rest of the composition. Mm -hmm. And what I get fascinated with when I talk to someone who has maybe similar experiences within a different realm of music is how those things connect. So, you, you know, so like what you're doing, you know, arrangement and direction and all of that, it sounds like there's a lot of connection there in, you know, when you're creating something, you want to, I don't know, I'm just, I'm hearing a lot of uh, connection. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's even your point of what you just said, I think you said it was two minutes for six seconds yeah. of that thing. It's like, I was, I was working on something recently where, I was needing to arrange a very famous song that has no words. And I'm like, how am I supposed to arrange this thing that is so specific already? And I only need a little bit of it. Everybody told me, actually, this is that was actually the hardest part, because everybody was like, you can't do it. Like, it's too famous. Everybody knows it. You're not going to be able to come up with anything else. And I was like, you're right, I can't. But in my head early when I was told about this, I was like, yeah, I can come up with something really awesome. Mm -hmm. And... I was talking to a collaborator on it and he said to me, don't worry about the five seconds you need, do the whole thing. And then you'll find the whole, the whole. And I was like, of course, but I was like, but do I need to really waste my time? And he's like, you're not wasting, you're creating. Like that's part of your process. It's like, I know that. I mean, I look at my logic folder and how many <laughs> minutes I have for to create like a three minute song, I have like hours of music, you know? Why is it with this one? I'm like, I can't, is it because it's something that's already done that I'm needing to go in? But he was right. I needed to do a bigger portion of it in order to then create something. And it's true because then the part at the end actually triggered what I wanted to do at the beginning. Oh, and I was like, aha. Uh -huh. Yep, that's how that happens so often. Do, do you, have you ever had it where you have created, like you're saying, and then there was a part of it you didn't use that you ended up revisiting and using for something else? Mm, not yet, but I definitely have things that I've saved that I want to do that with. Okay, yeah. Then I'm like, I know I will. But at the same time, I love creating. And so many times when I do something in the moment, I get a different idea. So I, yeah, I haven't gotten to re reuse any of those other things, but I've, I try to catalog it all in case. And I also don't remember most of it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I tend to remember maybe one, one day. Yeah. 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 Life is very busy. Well, this has been amazing. I'd love talking about all this stuff with you. And it sounds like there's just way more that we could, we could talk about and get even deeper, uh, with the music process and all of that. Uh, thank you for, you know, spending this hour with me. Thank you for hosting and having this and getting to talk about music and teachers and mentors and process. And yeah, it's, it's always, you know, it's great to also talk because it gets my brain going. Yes, absolutely. I know what you mean. And yeah, it, it was the, that you brought up so much about the process and about teaching and, and the development of that is something that we don't always get to. So uh, that was really valuable. And I appreciate that too. Thank you. Nick. Uh, and thank you everybody for being with us here as always for watching and listening and clicking and sharing. And please, all the links that I have underneath for David's, David's work, go check them out. Go check out good, good, crazy bites. Check out that episode of, uh, John Oliver. He's one of my favorite dudes. And when I saw that, I just absolutely blew me away. Um, and in, and in general, 
I hope you've appreciated the time that we spent here with David. And until next interview edition, I will talk to you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.